Pastor Ted will be preaching from 1 Peter 5, 5 through the end of the chapter. So if you have a copy of God's Word with you, uh, open to 1 Peter 5, and we'll read together. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever amen by savanus a faithful brother as i regard him i have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of god stand firm in it she who is babylon who is likewise chosen sends you greetings and so does mark my son greet one another with the kiss of love peace to all of you who are in Christ. May God transform us by the preaching of his word. Please turn in your Bibles to the, well, you're probably already there, so you don't have to, but in case you close them, go right back to chapter 5. In just a few moments, I'm going to uh, direct our attention to the very words that Derek has just read for us. This morning, as Pastor Mark indicated, even in his prayer, I am privileged to bring the closing sermon on this series of First Peter. I hope you remember the theme that we gave to this. I think it's really very helpful. I think it captures the book. We've entitled this series, Temporary Residence on Mission. Temporary residence is who we are. Actually, Peter calls us elect exiles. But we are on mission as temporary residents. We are, according to Peter in chapter 2 and verse 9, to give our lives to the proclamation of God's excellencies. And I would suggest that you write this title over the words 1 Peter or under the words 1 Peter so that whenever you read this epistle, you can consider it from that perspective. He is writing to a group of Christians who, in fact, by God's electing grace, actually became exiles in this world. Temporary residents, but on mission. And I would suggest that every day of our lives, we need to remind ourselves of this very thing, who we are and why we are here. In fact, we actually need to remind ourselves of this several times a day. We need to stop and say to ourselves, wait a minute, who am I? I'm one of God's chosen people. I have been separated by his grace from this world. I don't live by this world's values anymore. I don't need the, the accolades and the approbation of this world. I don't even need this promotion that I hope to have gotten. Why should I be surprised that I'm not the most popular person in the office? 
I'm an exile. I don't need this guy in my life. I don't need this girl in my life. I have God. I have an inheritance coming to me that's being kept for me in heaven. This world truly is not my home. I'm just to pass them through. And wait a minute. Why am I here? I'm here because I have a job to do. It's true that I'm a temporary resident, but I am on mission. I am to be proclaiming the excellencies of the God who has called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. Indeed, I am to so live in the midst of this unbelieving pagan world around me that many of my friends will see my good deeds and hopefully, by God's grace, glorify him upon the return of Christ. That is our overarching theme for this letter. Temporary residence on mission. But because we are temporary residents, exiles, aliens, sojourners, pilgrims, whatever you want to call yourself, because we have been separated from this world, chosen and set apart by God himself, living by a different set of values, living for a different purpose, unwilling to be conformed to this world, because of this, we become the objects of persecution and suffering. That is, in fact, a subtext that flows throughout the entirety of this epistle. The very first week that I prepared for the opening sermon, I went through the whole epistle and I found how many times the word trials was used and how many times the word suffering was used. And together it came to a total of 12. That is a theme, as I said, that runs through this epistle. So, as it is my privilege this morning to conclude this series of expositions, I've chosen to use suffering as the organizing principle, or as, if you will, the planet around which several moons of truth orbit. And I want us to see from our passage that the suffering Peter refers to was actually persecution. Persecution brought on God's people by the devil, who as always, is under the sovereignty of God. But the devil is in, around, before, and behind the suffering of persecution. And that's what I meant by my title, if you happen to have seen it on the e-bulletin. I use this expression, the devil is not only in the details. You've heard that expression. You know, when you get down to the final working out of some kind of an arrangement, perhaps it's a contract, the expression is often used, well, you know, the devil's in the details. And because that's the hardest part. That's the most difficult part sometimes to work through. And I come to remind you this morning, dear people, that the devil is not only in the details. He is in persecution. The devil is in persecution. But just before I open this up, let me dispatch a couple of sections of this overall passage, which Derek just read to us. Last week, Pastor Mark hopefully opened up verses 1 through 4. But probably belonging to that section is verse 5, where Peter says that younger, younger people are to be subject to the elders. Now, the question is whether or not Peter means by elders here the same that he had in mind in verse 1, I exhort the elders among you. In other words, was he referring to the office of elder or was he just referring to elderly people because the same word is used in both ways? And I'm not certain. Perhaps because it's so close to the usage of the word elder in verse 1, he's talking about pastors and he's simply saying, look, you guys and girls that are younger um, and perhaps still struggling with being headstrong and feeling that you're right and everyone else is wrong, please 
says Peter. Be subject. Crucify your pride. Crucify your arrogance. Crucify your self-confidence. And learn how to be subject to your elders, to God-constituted authority. That may well be what it means, but it's certainly biblical for all young people to show respect for and submission to elderly people. So it could be either. And then let me just make a comment about verses 12 through 14 because I'm not going to deal with it in the sermon, but I don't want any to go away and say, well, he didn't say a word about it. I'm going to say a word about it. As he closes this letter, he does five things. He speaks of the help of Silvanus, whose other name was Silas, Paul's missionary partner. He speaks of the purpose of his letter. He gives greetings from the church that was actually in Rome, but you'll notice it says she who is at Babylon. She is the feminine way of describing the church, the body of believers. We talk about the church by using the word feminine. It is the bride of Christ. And Babylon is used there symbolically. This isn't the Babylon of Mesopotamia. This is the Babylon of Revelation chapter 16, 17, and 18, which epitomizes the world. And at that time, Rome was the worldly city. And Peter is simply saying that the church in Rome, which he called Babylon, sends you greetings. And so does Mark. Mark was the author of the second gospel. And then he just gives them the exhortation uh, concerning the true gospel. And he says to stand in it. That's what he's been writing about. And then he encourages Christians to show their affection to one another in the way that was culturally appropriate at that time. At that time, it was to greet one another with a kiss of love. For us, it would be to shake one another's hands or perhaps to give a warm embrace. And then he leaves his readers with the benediction. So that's all I'm going to say. Could that easily be turned into a sermon? It could. But we have decided that we will conclude First Peter at the end of the year 2012. So having said that, now let me come back to the passage. And I want to show you what is going on in the lives of the readers of Peter's letter and how they are to respond to what was going on in their lives. As you heard it read, I hope you notice from verse 6 that the mighty hand of God was resting with some weight and pressure upon the people who were reading this letter. Because he says to them at verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Whose hand was on the believers who were reading this? God's hand was on the believers. And it was an oppressive hand. But even as we just sang, this God is too wise to be mistaken and too kind, or too good to be unkind. But nevertheless, they were experiencing the mighty hand of God. But where, where did the problem come in? The problem came in with people who didn't like them and who hated them and who were persecuting them, but who were stirred up to do that by the devil. Notice, as soon as he finishes telling them to humble themselves in verse 6 and to cast their anxieties upon him... He says, listen, you need to be very sober-minded and watchful. Here's the reason. Because your adversary, this is a legal term, the kind of person who opposes you in a court of law, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. So you see what's happening. Here's what's going on in the lives of the Christians to whom Peter is writing. They're experiencing persecution. They have people in their lives who hate them and who are bringing agony and pain into their lives. And they're being inspired to do that by the devil. And Peter is saying, let me help you put this in perspective. This devil who goes about like a roaring lion 
concerning whom you need to be very sober-minded and very watchful and very careful because of his tactics and his ploys, is doing this by the divine and sovereign permission of God. Ultimately, it is God's hand that is upon you with regard to persecution. And you must humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And you must respond in the way that will bring most glory to him and do most good for your souls. And so that's how we need to see this. Let me just put it like this. The hand of God, underneath the hand of God, the instrumentality of the devil, underneath the devil, people who hate Christians, underneath that, persecution, which results in suffering. That's what's going on. God is ultimately over it all. But down at the bottom, there is real, genuine, painful suffering going on by the Christians that Peter was writing to. And he's telling them how they must respond. So what they were experiencing was hate, persecution, and suffering. They could see that. But perhaps until Peter wrote, they couldn't see that it was the devil who was inspiring their enemies. And perhaps they weren't thinking clearly and remembering that it was God who was over the devil himself. So there were things that they could observe, and there were things that they couldn't see, but they needed to understand. So there it is. God, the devil, people, persecution, suffering. God, the devil, people, persecution, suffering. And in that context, Peter says, here's how you must respond. And it seems to me that he sets forth six things, maybe seven. The first is found in verse 8. Humble yourselves, therefore. By the way, I didn't actually pay adequate tribute to the last part of verse 5, so I'm going to go back and just make a comment about it. All I talked about was the young people need to humbly submit themselves to constituted authority in the church and certainly need to show respect to all elderly people. But did you notice at the end of verse 5, Peter goes on to say, clothe yourselves all of you. It's like, wait a minute, you're not talking to young people only now? No, I'm talking to everybody. All Christians of all age, humble your, clothe yourselves, literally in the Greek, tie on. Perhaps the imagery is putting on a, an apron uh, that a servant would wear when he went about his task. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So who is humility for? Is it just for the young people? No, it's for all of us. And what is the dimension of this humility? It's horizontal. Show humility toward one another. And then he grounds it in a really sobering truth about God. He says, here's why you need to be humble toward one another. It has to do with God's posture. Perhaps we should ask ourselves this question. Is is humility on the horizontal level with one another really, really that important? Well, look at the close of verse 5 and you answer that question. What if you're not humble toward your fellow believer? Well, you're in trouble with God. That's what will happen. God opposes the proud. He goes after the proud. But the other side of that coin is that he gives grace to the humble. So depending on our attitude, we can either be fearful, rightfully fearful, that we're going to get in trouble with God for our pride, or we can be encouraged that as we humble ourselves toward one another, God is going to grant us grace. That's what we want. Okay, now I finished my what I should have done a second ago. But one of the reasons I thought about that in the process of preaching this is because now when Peter comes in verse 6 and says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, what is the dimension? Is it horizontal or is it vertical? It's vertical. And so Peter is saying, these are the seven things that you must do now as you experience this intense persecution 
and suffering. Here's what you do. Here's where you start. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Recognize that ultimately God is behind this. God is over this. And God is calling us to just get down and say, God, you are in control and I'm going to quit I'm going to quit trying to control my life because I can't do it anyway. And perhaps that's why Peter immediately says, casting all your care upon him. What do we tend to do by nature? We tend to take our problems and take them to ourselves and think hard about what we should do, how we can solve them, and work on it and work at it and work at it. And then eventually we finally realize this isn't working. I probably, you know what? Maybe I ought to humble myself and give these things to God and recognize that I am not God. That's exactly what Peter's saying. So he's saying the first thing you do while you're experiencing suffering brought about persecution is to humble yourself. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and cast all of your cares upon him because he cares for you. Quit trying to be God in your own life. That's what Peter is saying. And the next thing he says right there in verse 8 is really uh, two things. Be sober-minded and be watchful. That is, get, keep your head screwed on straight. Think. Don't be stupid. And be very observant and very watchful and very aware. It doesn't mean you can't laugh. It doesn't mean you can't have fun. It doesn't mean you can't goof around. But it means with regard to what's going on in your life, be aware. Have your mind in control of yourself. And why do we have to be sober-minded and watchful? Because there's a devil. Because there's a devil prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, I was thinking about this, I think, yesterday. What would it be like if you were in this building and none of the doors were locked except the outside doors? Those doors that go into the older part of the building lead you down hallways. You can go in several directions. You can get back into the Midwest Center classroom. You can get to the sanctuary. You can get in the bathrooms. You can go in classrooms. You can go to the kitchen. And if you come back in here, you can go upstairs and down the hallways and imagine all of the doors open and someone says, you got to spend the night here all by yourself. And there's really only one problem. There's just one thing to be concerned about. Don't worry about rats. Don't worry about mice. Don't worry about anybody breaking in. All the outside doors are locked. Here's the only problem. There is a real, healthy, strong, ferocious lion prowling around, seeking someone to devour. How comfortable would you be? What virtues might you call upon? I suggest that you would be sober-minded, and very, very watchful. That's what Peter is saying to us about the devil. So we have to submit ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We have to cast all of our cares upon him, but we have to be sober-minded and watchful of the devil and all of his tactics. And in addition to that, according to verse 9, we're to do something else. We're to resist him. Who? Resist who? The devil. Resist him firm in your faith. You can't resist the devil without a solid faith in God. And as you resist the devil, while you're undergoing this very, very difficult suffering and persecution, don't lose perspective and conclude, you know what? No one's ever gone through anything like this before. Someone should write a biography about me. Probably nobody's experiencing this anywhere else in the world except me. And Peter says, no, no. Knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then one more thing he wants us to do in addition to being realistic, is he wants to keep what I call the long view. 
Just know, says Peter, that after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What is he saying? He's saying in addition to being humble and sober-minded and watchful and resistant and realistic, keep the long view. This is not going to last forever. If it lasts my whole life, it's just a little while. History itself is just a little while, let alone my little slice of history. And if my whole life is to be characterized by persecution and suffering under the mighty hand of God, it's still just a little while. And we need to live with that eschatological hope, that is, that hope that the end is coming. Christ is coming back. I saw a billboard on the way back from our recent trip, and all it said was, I'll be back, Jesus. We say that to one another. We go out the door, I'll be back. And Jesus has promised us he's coming back. And when he comes back, our suffering will be over. He's the one who has called us to eternal glory in himself will usher us into eternal glory. And at that time and on that day, we will be ultimately vindicated. And on that day, we will be restored and confirmed and strengthened and established. That's where you got to keep your mind, says Peter. So you see, really, we have a whole theology, or if you will, a psychology, on how to deal with suffering brought about by persecution, inspired by the devil, but sovereignly overseen by God. We have to humble ourselves. We have to cast our cares upon him. We need to keep our heads screwed on straight. We need to be very watchful. We need to realize that there is a real devil trying to bring us down, and we're going to dig our heels in by the grace of God and resist him. As James says, until he flees from us, and we're going to be realistic that these kinds of things are happening to other people right now, far worse for them than for us. But someday, after a little while, our Savior will come back and all will be made right. So, dear people, if, if we could go back in time to the days of, let's say, let's say a year or two after Peter wrote this letter, and interview one of the godly, mature Christians who was undergoing persecution, what would that interview be like? I think it'd be something like this. We, we, go, we come up to this mature Christian man and his wife and say, so what's going on? And the man says, intense suffering because of persecution. We're going through a fiery trial. That's what we're going through. What kind of persecution? Well, we've been beaten. Chapter 2, verse 20. And our properties have been plundered and confiscated, like in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 34. And some of us, some of our dearest friends have been put in prison. (coughs) Excuse me. How are you dealing with this? Well... We know that behind the persecution is the devil. He's trying to devour us like a prowling lion. We're trying to be sober-minded and watchful. We're trying by God's grace to resist the devil by standing firm in our faith. We realize that what we are experiencing is the same kind of suffering that our brothers and sisters are enduring throughout the world. But listen, our greatest comfort is knowing that God is sovereign over the devil, and he can only do what God permits him to do. In fact, we actually see ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We believe he's doing something good in our lives. Really? What? Well, he's calling us to deep humility. He's calling us to cast our cares upon him. He's calling us to be sober-minded and watchful. He's calling us to resist the devil. He's calling us to stand firm in the faith. He's teaching us to live by the hope, the certain hope, that our Savior is going to come back and make all things right. We believe that at the proper time, and he knows when that is, that God himself will exalt us. We actually believe that after we have suffered a little while, that the God of all grace who has called us to his eternal glory 
in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And our responsibility is to do what Peter told us to do in his first letter to us. What was that? Well, he said in chapter 4 and verse 19, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Man, we're just trying to keep the faith. We're just temporary residents on mission. That's what I think a mature believer who had read and by the grace of God implemented the counsel of Peter. And that's what this passage is primarily about. Now, what I want to do in the few minutes that are left is I want to turn this sermon into a New Year's resolution sermon. And I actually contemplated, we talked about this as, the, as pastors, should we really do this, finish First Peter, or should I do a New Year's resolution sermon and, and try to inspire us to get really resolved about the year 2013? And it dawned upon me that maybe there's a way that I can do justice to the passage and still turn it into some valid resolutions for 2013, and that's what I want to do. And I only have four. Here they are. I really seriously hope that you will embrace this as a resolve for 2013. I'm very serious about this. I would like the whole church to agree with these four resolves. Number one, resolve to cultivate an awareness of the ways you may find yourself under the mighty hand of God. So that you and I can humble ourselves and thereby grow in the grace of humility. Okay? Now, let me just say that again. It's a little bit long, but it's really not that complex. Here's what I want us to resolve together. I want us to resolve that by the grace of God, we are going to cultivate the awareness of ways in which we might be under the mighty hand of God. Now, obviously, none of us are under the mighty hand of God in that oppressive suffering brought about by persecution. I doubt that. I don't know of any believers in our church that are experiencing that level of persecution. But are there not people in our church that in some form or fashion are under the mighty hand of God? Are not you in some ways under the mighty hand of God? Yes. So what is he calling you to? He's calling you to humble yourself. He's calling me to humble myself. So that in this year of 2013, as we identify these things and quit just living mindlessly, we say, you know what? I think I'm under the mighty hand of God in this regard. God is speaking to me. He's saying, you need to humble yourself. And if we recognize these, dear brothers and sisters, and consciously get on our knees somewhere and say, God, I'm sorry that I've been oblivious to this. I realized that... In fact, you are sovereign over this. And this is a call to humility. And I need to cultivate humility in my life. I know I need to show it on a horizontal level to my brothers and sisters. But you are calling me now to humble myself before you. Oh God, grow me in the grace of humility. Would you join me in that resolve? What is it again? That this year you are going to cultivate an awareness of other ways that you may be under the mighty hand of God, which is calling you to humility. Number two, I would suggest that we resolve together to cultivate a greater awareness of the devil's presence in our lives. So that, there's a so that in all of these resolves so that we will develop and cultivate humility. Now, so that, so that, based on what? 
Cultivate a greater awareness of the devil's presence in your life. Maybe that doesn't sound like good counsel to you. Maybe that sounds like it's contrary to trust and faith and living under the gracious preservation of God. Well, it may sound like that, but it isn't. I'm saying to all of us this morning that we need to cultivate our awareness of the presence of the devil in our lives. Do you think the devil isn't involved with Heritage Baptist Church? Do you think the devil is not involved with specific members of this church, including the pastors? He's very interested in this church. I told the young people not long ago in one of the teen Sundays, based on the parable of the, of the sower, or if you will, the soils, that with regard to the hard pathway soil, which Jesus interprets as the heart that doesn't even receive the word of God. And then he explains why, because the, the fowls represent, the birds of the air represent the devil who snatches away the seed before it even begins to germinate. And I said to the kids, just remember this, the devil gets to church before you get there. He's waiting. He wants to mess you up during this sermon. But it's not just his activity while we're here. It's his activity everywhere. He's going to be in the car or he's going to try to be in the car with you through his demons. He's going to be with you in this next week. He wants to bring you down. These are Christians. He doesn't give up because you become a Christian. Well, there, oh, there's another soul got saved. I guess I'm done working and messing around with their lives. No, Peter says, you're enduring persecution because the devil is like a roaring lion. Be sober, be watchful. And I'm saying to all of us, we need to cultivate an awareness of the devil's presence in our life so that, so that we can become more sober-minded and watchful and determined to resist him. Now, I'm going to acknowledge that I think you could get preoccupied with that in a very unhealthy way, okay? So this is where I'm trying to be pastorally balanced. If you just live every moment of your life just thinking about the devil, thinking about the devil, thinking about the devil, well, obviously, that's going to be unbalanced. But you know what I dare to suggest? I dare to suggest that we don't think about him enough, and we're not even aware of his presence. We're not being sober-minded and watchful until after we fall and say, Man, I didn't realize that the devil was in that situation. I wasn't being sober-minded. I wasn't being watchful. Dear people, cultivate an awareness of the devil's presence in your life. I need to do that. You need to do that. We need to do that. 2013, and when it comes to an end, someone says to you, what, uh, what progress did you make in your Christian life in the year 2013? Well... A couple of things come to mind. By the grace of God, I was able to cultivate an awareness of his hand upon my life and the call to humility. Anything else? Yes. Believe it or not, I actually cultivated a greater awareness of the devil's presence in my life so that I could resist him better. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Aren't we better off resisting him by being conscious of his presence than not even thinking about it? Of course, no-brainer. So that's the second thing. And I, I just want to remind you, dear people, that, uh, of course, we're supernaturalists. We're not just, we're not naturalists. We're supernaturalists. We believe in God. We believe in spiritual beings. We believe there was a real angel in heaven by the name of Lucifer who was expelled because he was permitted by God's perfect, sovereign, omniscient will to to fall. And he and all those who joined him were expelled from heaven. And there, there could be literally millions of devils in the world. Millions of devils. Could be. I'm not, I'm not saying that there are, but the Bible doesn't tell us. But what the Bible does leave us with the impression is, is that there are a great number. Again, talking to the young people, I think, recently about legion. No, it was a, it was a um, sermon review on, in a mentoring class. One man whom Jesus cast demons out, his name was Legion, because he had 12,000, 12,000 demons in one person. You think 
That's pretty much it. Maybe there were another 100 or 300 somewhere around the world, and that's it. There could be millions of demons. We have no idea. And somehow there's a communication system between them and their boss, their wicked, evil boss, the devil. But in a sense, the devil is involved in our lives through the demons, and we need to be aware of it. And we need to resist him. And I'm saying to us this morning, this passage reminds us that the devil is real. I mean, what would a modernist say to Peter? Peter, are you crazy? You believe in spirit, a spirit world? You, You still believe that there is a person called the devil? Where did you get your education? From God. And I experienced the powerful influence of that wicked person when I cowered and denied my Savior three times. I'm very, very conscious. And I thank God for rooster crows. Even though it's painful. What do you mean, Peter? I'm saying to you that I can't ever hear a rooster crow and not remember the day I denied my Savior And I believe the devil was very active in my life when that happened. Number three, cultivate a determination to live a more godly life than you've ever lived before. Sounds good. Sound novel. You ever heard anything like that around here? Why don't you all try to cultivate a determination to live more godly than you've ever lived before? No, you've heard that hundreds of times from the pulpit of Heritage Baptist Church. But I didn't come to the so that yet. Listen to this. You're going to think I'm crazy. Cultivate a determination to live more godly than you've ever lived before so that you will actually experience serious persecution in your life. What? You're encouraging us to cultivate a level of godliness that we've never known before for the single purpose of hoping that through the exercise of that godliness, the devil is going to hate us and he's going to inspire other people to hate us and we're actually going to experience persecution, more persecution than we've ever experienced before. You said serious persecution. Are you serious about encouraging us to cultivate godliness that will result in serious persecution? Yes, I'm serious. And I believe that if we could go back and talk to any of those Christians who lived during the days that Peter wrote them, who maybe their little while was the whole life, and talk to them this side now of their death and say, so how do you feel about the persecution and the suffering that you endured? Every single one of them would say it was was a gracious, sovereign experience. What? People hating you? Yes. Why? It drove me to my knees. It drove me to my Savior. It helped me deal with sin in my life. It was such an honor to be persecuted for the name of Jesus. I'm so glad I went through. It was good for me. And if nothing else, it was good for me because it was a certain level of godliness and the attaining of it by his grace that that caused the persecution. And if, if that's... The cause and persecution is the effect. The cause is great. What a great cause. And we've been saying to you with greater frequency, this church, these pastors, we need to grow in holiness in 2013. But I'm saying so that, so that we will experience some Serious persecution. You know why we don't experience serious persecution? There are two reasons. 
The two reasons are, number one, we live in the United States of America, which is still enduring the, the positive effects of having once been a basically Christian nation. We were never truly completely Christian, but in the sense that Christianity had a profound influence upon this nation, and we still enjoy it. We live in the United States of America. We don't live in Somalia. We don't live in Iran or Iraq. But it's changing fast, real fast. That's the first reason, and we we don't take credit for that, and we shouldn't feel guilt for that, okay? But now I'm going to tell you what you should feel guilty about. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Yes, and all, all, I can go like this, all, And work all through the whole congregation, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall, not might, shall be persecuted. Well, Paul, surely you're not going to make such a generic, unqualified abstract statement is that, are you? It doesn't apply to us here. Oh, yes. Yes. And here's the deal. You know why you and I are not experiencing any kind of serious persecution? Now it's not because we live in the United States of America. It's because we have not arisen to the level of godliness that makes the devil hate your guts and inspires other people to hate your guts. Am I encouraging us to be obnoxious? Of course not. I'm encouraging us to be more bold and more consistent and more clear-cut in our Christian lives so that, in effect, we invite persecution. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? But it isn't. Because the persecution that will result as an effect will be because of a wonderful, glorious cause. Put it in the scales. Which would you rather have? Godliness with persecution or lesser godliness and no persecution? If you say the latter except by saying, well, in my flesh. Something's seriously wrong with us. We ought to literally desire, and I'm putting it out there. I'm saying, I'm, I'm saying, if you didn't get it, I'm saying, one of the things that this church and all of its members should resolve for 2013 is I want to I live so godly that for the first time in my life in Owensboro, Kentucky, or Newburgh, Indiana, or Evansville, or wherever you may be living, I began to experience serious persecution. And I'm so thankful for it. I hope that we'll be able to say that. Finally, I want to encourage us to cultivate a deeper appreciation for and reliance upon the one, capital O, the one who experienced ultimate suffering so that Here's my last so that, so that you and I may more gladly embrace the potential of suffering for him and who endured the ultimate suffering so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that the wrath of God, which should justly be poured out upon us, was abated and propitiated. Cultivate a deeper appreciation and reliance upon the one who experienced the ultimate suffering. And there are a lot of so that's that you could add to it. The apostles, after having been beaten, they were put in prison. And, the, and the, it says an angel of the Lord opened the doors and they went right back to the temple and started preaching. And the council said, what in the world is going on? I thought they were in jail. And they dragged them before the council. And the council rebuked them, admonished them, didn't dare to uh, touch them again. But sent them out. No, they did. They, they beat them. This is all in Acts chapter 5. They beat them. 
And you know what the Bible says? These are the apostles in Jerusalem. It says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Wouldn't it be great to be like the apostles? When I look at myself and them, I think, what a, what a disparity between their boldness and their faithfulness and mine. And with this I close. In my preparations, I was reminded of a martyr, and you've heard his name perhaps. His name was Ignatius. And the Roman governor, Trajan, hated him. He went to the city of Syria, or to Antioch, Syria, just to see him once in his life. He didn't want to become a Christian. And when he saw Ignatius, he says, There you are, wicked devil, deceiver of men. Ignatius replied, Not an evil spirit, but I have Jesus Christ in my heart. Jesus Christ within you? Do you mean him who was crucified by Pontius Pilate? Yes, he was crucified for my sins. And after he heard that, Trajan said, send him to the Colosseum and give him to the lions. And this is what Ignatius said upon hearing the dictum. Let me be given to the wild beasts, for through them I can attain unto God. It's just it's a, door to, it's a door to heaven. I am God's wheat, and I am ground by the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found pure bread. I'm just wheat. Go ahead and grind it. Come fire and cross and grapplings with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, hacking of limbs, crushing of my whole body. Come cruel torturers of the devil to assail me. Only be it mine to attain unto Jesus Christ. And they let the lions in. And the lions devoured Ignatius. They tore him from limb to limb. How'd you like to die that way? And after the passing of a little time, his dearest friends were able to go in and only recover a few bones that the lions had gnawed on. We're going to meet Ignatius someday. But I don't want to just meet him. I want to be like him. I want to love my Savior so much that I'm willing to be so godly for him that the world hates me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful epistle. And we thank you for helping us to see who we really are. We're just temporary residents on mission. Lord, we have forgotten both of those things. We live as though this world is our home and as if we're going to be here forever and as if the only job we had was to seek our own pleasure and happiness. Forgive us. Forgive us of that. And help us to see again more clearly than ever before that we are set apart to be aliens on mission. And may we be willing, no, desirous of being persecuted for the sake of our Savior's name.